I always think about the pandemic, this Thanos level finger snap, where everyone's brought back to square one during this difficult past two years. All the norms are thrown out of the window. It makes for a very interesting period to fundraise with not much to show for it. And a lot of people have said that I'm crazy to make this leap. But I say it's the best possible time to be building because everyone's back to square one. But at the end of the day, it's very important to also pay due respect to luck and timing. I think any entrepreneur who tells you luck is not a function of his or her outcome must be joking. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the powers of business, technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung and electric vehicles leads to a more sustainable future for Southeast Asia. And bringing that reality to the emerging economies in Southeast Asia is a challenge. With me today, James Chan, CEO and founder of Ion Mobility, and in the distant past, was my former investor in a failed startup of mine a decade ago. I'm eternally grateful for his faith many years back and still apologetic for not making it. But in any case, welcome, James. And it's a long time coming for this interview. Thank you, Bernard. It's great to be on the show. Yes. And I know your origin story because you have contributed pretty significantly to the Southeast Asia ecosystem from investor, server servant, and also now as an entrepreneur. How do you start your career? I think it's been quite a ride. I have had a very exciting 16 plus year journey since 2000, since returning from the US in 2006 right, for my studies. I started my career initially as a public servant, as a government scholar, working at IDA, now known as IMDA. I later moved to Infocom Investments, which was a subsidiary of IDA back then. Today, it's known as SG Innovate. I then left for a secondment to Walden International. And uh, after which six months in, I had a benefactor bust me out from my scholarship on, right? Uh, Joy Ido. And we started a venture fund together, a five mil seed fund. So that's how I crossed paths with Bernard, investing in a startup that he mentioned previously. And that fund did really well, but I stayed on in Southeast Asia and went on to build my own venture builder, venture accelerator holding company called Silicon Straits. Got involved in all kinds of venture build, venture accelerate plays, of which included a Vietnamese-based software and product development company. There was a subsidiary of Silicon Straits that was also involved in a warehouse robotics company from India that helped them internationalize in Southeast Asia and Japan. And later on in, in fintech, working with a Chinese company, a Chinese startup in from Beijing. And, and all of those journeys eventually led me to where I am today, working and building on Ion Mobility as its founder CEO since late 2019. So all the way before Ion Mobility, I think what I want to ask you is, what are the interesting perspectives moving from the investor to the entrepreneur point of view? Yeah, I get this question a lot. I think both as an investor, having gone, in fact, all three sides of the table, right? Having sat on the industry development side of public service and then having moved to early stage tech venture capital and then zero entrepreneur in a bunch of roles across different industries, it's very similar. I mean, investing and startups, even though they seem different, it's really two sides of the same coin, right? I think both are startups of a different sort. I've started a fund before. I've started companies before. And as an investor, uh, a common and out, a phrase I use is we tend to play the field. It tends to be top-down. We identify themes and trends. We fundraise from our investors. And then we look at the entry, the portfolio construction, the exits, and we take a risk management view. Uh, and of course, there's also the within the GP dynamics right, between the investing partners. As an entrepreneur, I think it's very much bottoms up, trying to make a marriage work. 
where you're, you first have to figure out whether you're in the right macro meta identification play, pick the, pick the bets you want to go after. And then you figure out your entry point and then you hustle your way to initial traction, product market fit. And then a lot of the focus is on the team talent and the way you pull together the execution of the fundraise, the operations, the product development, you know, the, 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 the exit eventually, which I think all investors are looking for. So I think they're similar, but very different, uh, of very different sort of similar. And, and having gone through all sides of that, it's, it's pretty humbling to, to try and do it on the entrepreneur side. That comes to my favorite question. What are the most interesting career lessons you can share with my audience? I have two maxims that I tend to lead my life with. I share this a fair bit with the annual EMBA class I teach at once a year. It's a bit like an equation, right? As an engineer myself, I, I like to think of equations. And of course, I'm, I'm using very simple operands. But in most of the world, we are measured by our results, right? So I've been looking at how I frame my mental model to achieving results. And uh, I, I look at it as a combination of generating flow. And, and then you kind of multiply that with your ability to filter from the flow. And, and then you multiply that against the kind of action that you can take as an individual, as, a, you know, as part of a team. And then when this thing gets combined together, you, you have this results that you're gunning for. Very often when you can't generate flow, then you, you obviously have less opportunities in life. Uh, when you have a lot of flow, but you can't pick well, then you can't filter. You just, just buang la. You know, you pick the wrong kind of thing to work on. And uh, if you have flow and filter, but you can't take proper action, I think very often then you don't get the results, right? You just, the Chinese say, so it's just one little bit that you miss. And I think that's when you need this complete triumvirate. Another equation I like to think about that involves people being an, an investor myself and also being an entrepreneur myself, you often evaluate people and evaluate talent. And I think for any talent that comes through the door, any people, anybody I know, right? I always think about it in the form of three different variables. Everyone has expertise. Everyone has some function or output of a leadership, exhibition of leadership, right? The best leader is often the best follower who knows how to you know, make the leadership work, right? So uh, expertise multiplied by leadership multiplied by, I think, a very important part as we get older, right? I'm 41 this year, turning 41 this year. You think about, about the fit, and that's the third variable. And, and this fit, I think, is actually most important when it comes to startups and, and making sure that you have people of the right fit. Very, it's very obvious to look for expertise and leadership, but I think selecting fit is all, one that's much harder because you know, you're often up against all kinds of gradients looking for talent. So these are the two, I think, life equations that I, I'd like to share with my, your audience. Which comes to the main subject of the day. I want to talk to you about ION mobility and we want to discuss about electrical vehicles. And I'm going to do this interview a little bit different and actually invert it around. I want to help my audience to understand the electric vehicle opportunity. Can you talk about the electric vehicle market and establish why the electric motorcycle industry it's interesting to where Ion Mobility positions itself currently in Southeast Asia market and maybe eventually to the larger Asia-Pacific Asia market. So this is a tricky one. I, I had to go through this process of learning and validation before I started this space, right? It kind of goes back to the points we covered earlier about, you know, picking your entry and understanding the macro and the meta. I think... I would like to cover, respond to your question in several perspectives. I think on one, one perspective, I think about it in terms of the electric two-wheeler 
market to come vis-a-vis the ICE two-wheeler market that is in Southeast Asia. ICE being internal combustion engine, right? It's a traditional uh, combustion bikes. I think there's one paradigm there where in Southeast Asia is actually the third largest market in the world, right? Indonesia by itself is the third largest market in the world by new motorbikes, ICE two-wheelers sold every year, even during the pandemic, right? Uh, behind China, number two, and India, number one. And I, I think the E2W, E2-wheeler market to come is one where it doesn't exist today. In Southeast Asia, I say it doesn't exist. Unlike, say, China, right, where you have bicycle lanes and three to seven hundred US dollar mopeds that are for bicycle lane traffic. That's paradigm-wise very different from what you find in Southeast Asia, where it's you know riddled with combustion bikes, ice bikes that are everywhere, uh, that are central to the lives of Southeast Asia consumers as they go about their lives in the cities. So that's one paradigm, and then. There is the Southeast Asian nuance, I think, where you think about markets. I think about them in two categories. I think there's these uh, significant markets like Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, and to some extent, Philippines, right? And then there's the others. I think Malaysia, for example, I always get this question, is Singapore an important market? No, not really. But it's a home market, right, for the headquarters. But I often think about Malaysia as a more interesting hinterland market than, than Singapore and then the others. So there's also the Southeast Asian market segment because Southeast Asia is actually a complex market. Uh, every country is different. But then again, even in the motorcycle, motorbike, scooter realm, the dynamics is unique within each of these, com- these tiers or even within each country to each country. So, and then the third, I think, perspective or third paradigm I think about is Indonesia being the world's largest nickel producer. Right? I think the Indonesian government in recent years have been trailblazing in revamping and you know upgrading their promotion and regulation policy promote regulating policies around their commodities production extraction their industrial and transportation policies revolving around electric two-wheelers i think thailand is a fast second and there's some fast recent movements i'm seeing and murmurings from the malaysia market as everyone thinks about what electric two-wheelers what role it plays in the transition of their transportation sector and at a, at a large extent, the transportation GDP. And then the fourth paradigm, I think, I think about this is in the environmental impact of what we do. What the market electric two-wheeler opportunity means, uh, the environmental impact. Everyone thinks that electric cars, buses and trucks are the more obvious EV to go after. That's where I think there's a huge blaring hole in their evaluation, because a lot of us ride cars from a better, you know, in, in terms of the way, because Singapore's a car-first market, and that's why our regulators don't focus on motorbikes. But Indonesia is a motorbike first. It outsells cars six to one on an annual basis. And uh, there's a much larger population of uh, motorbikes, right, and, and cars. So the impact, the ability to exert impact in what we do, it, it, from an environmental perspective, I think is far greater when we think about it in terms of, say, urban air pollution. Not so much just pure environmental in a fuzzy-wuzzy kind of way, but I think a lot about it more in terms of the health benefits of how we eliminate the PM2.5 and other particulates from combustion motorbikes and scooters, henceforth urban air pollution. And then also, I think over time, as this catches on in an even bigger way, I think we can see within this environmental umbrella, the brown energy to green energy transition. This conversation is not very focused on because 
were really dominated by brown energy in Southeast Asia, Indonesia especially, coal, and to a lesser extent, gas, right? And because of that, I think it is important for us to think about where to enter the motorbike category, the motorbike scooter category, in terms of the price to value segment. That's why we picked the premium mass market as our entry, the 150 to 160cc category, which is still a significant market segment in Indonesia, even though it's not the biggest market segment. So I think by, by taking on this multitude of perspectives, I hope it at least helps to give your audience different ways to think about this. Uh, I, I don't know if I gave clear answers, but I wanted to just offer frameworks in thinking about this market and how we want to position ourselves, how we think about this, how we, how we slice and dice this. That's pretty clear, given that you actually look at this particular problem in five different perspectives and covering the environmental aspect, the affordability, the markets itself, and etc. Maybe I want to drive a little bit deeper. Then what led you into getting the inspiration behind setting up IO Mobility? A lot of my friends in the business world and investing world and my, my relatives are shocked, right? I mean, like James, you don't have a motorbike license. What makes you sure that you can go, go after this and make it successful? And this harks back to your question earlier about how I started my career, my advice that I gave earlier in general. At the age of 40, 41, well, when I started this 30, 38, 39, right? A lot of people say that founders in Southeast Asia start much later than them in the Western world and, and say Silicon, the traditional Silicon Valley uh, perspectives. Where in Asia, I think the, the the startup age that you really start mellowing and reaching your prime, I think is 40, 38, 30 plus 40. And you've accumulated this you know life of ex- wealth of experience and perspectives by then, by now for me. And uh, I kind of look back at my process, my journey, right? Having gone full circle, what did I prefer to do? I was really seeking my second half of my life kind of business. Like the Chinese would say, the and in looking for this second part of my life challenge, I really wanted to build something not just challenging, right? I think, I think we all like to self-flagellate to some extent as entrepreneurs and, and seek maximum pain, right? And that, that's part of this crazy DNA that we all carry. And in thinking about this, what I want to align my life goals, my life stage, and this goes back to my my, my lesson, my, my formula earlier, right? About expertise, leadership, and fit. About myself, right? Think about myself, what I've gone through. What expertise have I gathered over the years with my particular brand of leadership and my life and career fit? And what, what am I looking to to deliver or achieve with my so-called Xiaoban my second half of my life venture. And, and I really reached this crystallization of wanting to deliver impact in a long-term play. One which isn't about chasing venture capital fund cycles and themes and like, you know, Web3 being such a hot thing. A lot of times the, the, to me, I think being contrarian and, and wanting to go after what I think is the right macro meta and, and wanting to then deliver impact in a much bigger way over a longer cycle of time. And, and I felt that looking at the timing, looking at the opportunity set, wanting to be in this part of the world, not, not having moved to, you know, say the US or Europe or whatever, right? And wanting to stay relevant in this part of the world and thinking about, I think, Singapore's place vis-a-vis the EV capital of the world in China and thinking about this amazing market and all my friends and partners in Indonesia that I've come to know in my previous life as a fintech guy, right? Having gone done my first operating stint in Indonesia as a fintech 
entrepreneur. And I, I said, I want to do, do something that involves design, meeting hardware, meeting software. And I think iMobility checks the box, checks all the boxes, right? Where I get to do this. My preference is to go after this longer cycle innovation where we have hard tech meets, meets fintech meets direct to customer. So, so that's, I guess, the best way I can really tell you what, what motivated me to do this because it was so difficult. You know, it's, 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 it's amazing. It's crazy hard to pull, try and pull this off so far. It's an interesting challenge and probably will take years. And I guess we, we overestimate what we can do in one year, but underestimate what we can do in a decade. So interesting anecdote. I actually had a, a prospective investor who I met. And the first question he asked me was, James, are you prepared to take a 10-year founder vesting schedule? My immediate mental reaction was, yeah, it's going to take 10 or more years to make this work. I said, of course, I'm willing to do that. But in return, what are you willing to give up as an investor for me to put a 10-year vesting? He could not answer me. That to me, I think, is a reminder of how long this is going to take. With the inspiration comes also the vision and mission for your company. What is that? Linking up with what? You got me to talk about the inspiration. I wanted to set about building this tech company with a mission to create and deliver affordable, desirable, and sustainable e-two-wheeler mobility and energy for everyone. And I think we've constrained it right now to Southeast Asia. I think it's important to find your focus and stick to it. We are committed to, in this region and in this period, and of course, vision and missions change over years, right? But I think for the foreseeable future, we are committed to creating great products and seamless user experiences for our customers. As an entrepreneur, what I've come to learn, even as an investor, right, over the years, is you win when you, have, when you own the customers. And, and I want to own my customers. And, and that's why I want to build, uh, and, and there's this great saying, right, by Alan that says, serious people who care about the software will build great hardware. And that really motivated me to think about how we can build products that combine advanced hardware and software with human-centered design so, as, so that we can deliver smart electric motorbikes and hopefully in time to come, uh, energy storage solutions that are for everyone to use. Our vision is to be Southeast Asia's top technology company that can, through our products and services, lead our region's transition towards a lower carbon economy with electric and electric mobility products across for consumers across Southeast Asia. So it's lower, not low, because it's subjective what that scale needs to be. Every region will have its own um, yardstick. And I think for Southeast Asia, each country, which is faced with a different set of cards for energy, we're going to have to take a different approach, right? A different curve to get there. Singapore's 2040, you know, everyone's shouting different numbers. That's why we are motivated to then build our inaugural EV motorbike product designed for Southeast Asian motorbike riders, uh, an expression of this mission that we started on Made Real, where we started by with a sketch, moving on to computer-aided designs on the computer to you know, supply chain production, and, and eventually from store to our customers, where we want to demonstrate this interplay between rider versus machine, between design versus functionality, and between performance versus intelligence, so that we can deliver this unequivocal dynamic riding experience. I went from top down, right? Gave you this view of what we're hoping to achieve. Very grandiose words, but I like to think that in the past two years, we've been slowly but steadily executing, chipping away at the problem and building all the pieces of what it takes to have an end-to-end full-stack approach that I, I, I believe in will take us to success in this region.
So as I understand, Ion Mobility focuses on the electric motorcycle and also energy storage solutions. Can you provide some color to how these product lines shape the businesses? I think about it in terms of three parts. E2-wheelers, it's used very loosely as a category, but in our case, it's specifically going after the premium mass market of ICE motorbikes, which is the 150-160cc category that is embodied by our first model, the Ion Mobius that we unveiled last December. And we're in the midst of moving towards uh, production cycles, uh, in getting ready for go-to-market in the uh, second half of this year in Indonesia. And these are road-worthy motorbikes, right? These are not low-powered vehicles that you can't take two adults on a slope with, with load, right? So these are powerful vehicles that are requiring motorbike riding licenses, unlike the mopeds that you use in China on the bicycle lanes. Um, so I think that's the what we're going, trying to do. We're already designing the second model and in time to come, hopefully, more to tell you about that. That's for the motorbike space, the E2W space. The second aspect is the energy storage. Right now, I think it's the battery packs that we have, the battery management systems that we have in our motorbike product. But over time, I can see our know-how and capabilities and, and technology and supply chain access and our IP expanding to potentially cover products that might serve as an energy storage solution for homes and offices. So something that I, I don't have anything on, on hand, but we're actively thinking about this problem. I can see this being an augmentation to the grid. I can also see this as an augmentation to a fast charging network where it's about pack-to-pack, DC-to-DC. And last but not least, I think about also the fast charging network that we will eventually deploy. Not initially, but even as we're trying to build up and go to market with our motorbikes, we're already laying the foundational pieces for our in-house technology to enable fast charging to come in time to come. I, I, I think there's a lot of talk about battery swaps as an easy way to provide range, to ameliorate the range anxiety problem. I think it's a, from a user experience perspective, it seems very obvious, but we don't believe and we don't buy that Kuwait. We, we think that actually in today's context where lithium is a lot better in terms of energy density and the pack per, per watt hour cost of, per kilowatt hour cost have come down, it makes more sense to use battery swaps as a range augmentation approach rather than to adopt a complete range dependency on the battery swaps, which is why we are you know, moving towards this fast charging network strategy. I think these are the three pieces that we think about in terms of the products and solutions and how we can offer to customers in time to come, starting with the electric motorbikes. So James, one can think of Tesla is a similar company to Ion Mobility, but in the car space, right? And we all heard of Elon Musk's famous secret plan to make Tesla work by creating three lines of vehicles since its inception. So what is James Chan's secret plan to make Ion Mobility work then? Uh, so I think it's more likely and more apt to say that we've been inspired by what Tesla has done, that Ion is as a similar company to Tesla, given that they've been trailblazing in the car space and it's a much more complex problem. But I think we've been inspired by what they've done. We've been inspired by what other players are doing, like Gogoro and, and other players in India. And, but I think we are adapting it for and innovating upon it for Southeast Asian nuances. Right? I think Southeast Asia is a unique market. You're not going to be able to remote control or remote access the market by just following traditional models of doing business. And, and, but, but having said that, uh, I think there is no secret. I think I don't have these grand visions and grand plans. 
Obviously, obviously, three is this magical number that people think about, but I'm not going to want to be constrained to that. Cars have, uh, it's, it's far easier to consolidate model styles into three, right, for example. But in motorbikes, I think the consumer preferences are quite much more of a continuum. So I suspect we're going to need more than three models to, to go after the markets, a meaningful segment of the market. But at the end of the day, I think it's just no secret. It's really just a lot of hard work in the early days. And I think time horizon-wise, it's always much easier to kind of take a hindsight look at it later and give you a better answer in years to come. But my secret, I think maybe about to look back and say to what it takes to get us this far, I think it takes a special founding leadership team across multiple countries and our supply chains with this design, with this diverse range of design and engineering and production capabilities and know-how to try and to even dare to try and pull this off. Right. I think and, and, and I think without the strong support from our investors so far, without the help that we've been getting from our suppliers and partners, I think it's it's really difficult to try and do this out of Singapore. That's hard, right? So this is the best answer I can give you <laughs> in the meantime. Ask, ask me again in a few years' time. Let's see. <laughs> I'll definitely ask that question again someday. I don't have a motorbike license, but I saw your Ion Mobus launch the vehicle and it looks really good, cool and beautiful. Can you talk about the story of Ion Mobius, the electric vehicle, which you conceptualized, designed, and assembled in Singapore over the past 18 months? This is the first product that we are bringing to market. In bringing this product to market, I think we want this product to show our prospective customers and suppliers that we are able to design an eye-catching and significant product that is automotive-grade. And is production worthy, right? I think a lot of people always. I, I looked at what Tesla did, right? And I think they started with the Roadster, and then they moved on to your Model S, and so on and so forth. I think in motorbike space, and in the hardware space in Southeast Asia, and I'm I'm no Elon, right? I'm not, we're not Tesla. I'm not Elon. I don't have a PayPal mafia. I don't have investors waiting to throw money at me. And we're in Southeast Asia, where I think historically we've had generally just poorer appreciation of hardware companies and maybe admittedly poorer track record of successes in hardware companies, right? So, so in order to do this, I think we had to pick the, pick the right intersection of product market segment fit. We had to put together the engineering end-to-end design, mechanical, electrical, embedded systems, firmware, software, and really bring together this combination that is the instrumentation cluster, which is, includes our vehicle computer unit, in-house battery pack that we design, build, and produce with the battery management systems proprietary and an electric motor and motor controller pairing, which brings out the best of all of these things, right? That forms the core of the Ion Mobius to deliver its performance and its features. But more importantly, I think the firmware and software also needs to exist. We, we build our own real-time OS. We implement our own firmware layer, hardware abstraction layer software, and to enable this initial set of functionality that we believe is a lot more user-friendly than what ICE two-wheelers or even incumbent ICE EV who built their own electric two-wheelers can, can deliver. Because we take a different approach. I, I have much more background in software, software innovation. And I think we're taking that view the same way I think Tesla does in trying to find ways to build a modular and extensible platform that can let us add more features over time, add more sensors over time and, and adopt this iterative, creative approach as we listen to users and deliver more value to them in a quicker way than how I think automotive e- uh, two-wheelers have been 
designed and sold. So take a take a sledgehammer to it and kind of make it a 1984 moment in the two-wheeler space for automotive road vehicle products. Mm. Yeah. So one of the key interesting parts is to think about the manufacturing and distribution of hardware, whether it's a motorbike or phone, is always complicated and requires also some form of knowledge to how the supply chain works. How will Ion Mobility have to work to get your manufacturing to scale as you get more demand from the market? Because it's two-wheeler, but I think you have alluded to to talk about the difficulty of actually putting all the different components together. I saw the screen of the Ion Mobility bike is, is very well designed and I think it's, it's kind of making the electric motorbike into a computer of some form, at least from my point of view, also taking a very software approach of thinking about that. Yes, it's pretty much two wheels with an engine and a battery and a computer. And you're right to say that I do think about it as, in some senses, number of active subscribers who are contributing revenue through active motorbikes, electric motorbikes that are riding actively on the roads every day. In order to get there, I think you're right, we have to first make it and distribute it. And the first statement I'm going to say is not something that investors like to hear, but in this region like to hear, but it's going to take time. This this is hardware we're dealing with. You can't agile the shit out of hardware as easily as you can agile software and have quick releases. You're going to have to plan better. You're going to have to coordinate better and break through the Tower of Babel and ensure that communication works great between all the offices we have, right? I mean, we have three major centers of operations right now. And with Singapore as the HQ, a design and engineering center, but we've also got some engineering and production know-how in China supply chain. We've also got our go-to-market supply chain production teams in, in Indonesia. And I think this ability to bridge it and to get to where we are today is a representation of how we've been able to get it to work at this point in time. Of course, as you scale up past the initial low volume builds, you're going to need a lot more scale. I think the know-how, it's not rocket science, right? I mean, I'm not trying to go to Mars. All the Kung Fu that's needed to make reliable Motorbikes have been done before. I think in, in India, you have several Indian conglomerates who have partnered with the Japanese players in the early days of India's motorcycle history. In China, you have the Chinese OEMs who have done a great job at keeping the Japanese at bay in China, right? And have built their own business over time in, in China. And so there's talent, the supply chain, there's know-how. And in Indonesia, I think Honda and Yamaha, uh, they have been, they, they, they're not, doing that much engineering there, but they've done a lot of supply de- supply development, supply chain developments and, um, and assembly. I think it's really about stitching the, the thread through the needle eyes. There's a lot to do though. There's a lot of moving parts. And, and to that end, I think we've already built the teams across the regions. We've done our builds so far. We've already designed and deployed a battery pack assembly line in Singapore, which we can scale up to Indonesia once we commission it and run it several cycles. And we're putting together a pilot vehicle assembly in Singapore that will be used as a digital twin for our eventual Indonesia assembly operations. And with the team working on identifying and shortlisting our CKD, completely knocked down full production facility in Indonesia. That, I think, is the best answer I can give you now. I don't want to give too much away. We're still figuring some things out along the way. But yes, it's going to take a lot of manufacturing prowess. And I think that's really the part that I think a lot of people don't think about. It's just, oh, it's so easy. Just put two wheels together and some batteries and off you go, right? You can start moving. But no, no, I think the business is much more than that. You're going to have to make them. You're going to have to make them well. 
you don't want the bikes to catch fire in the middle of using like what's happening to the Ola scooters in India because they're rushing it, right? And you you don't want to have too much money and you blow it all away. You don't have not enough money so that you can't put in the right purchase orders for the right components at the right price. So it's complex and it's going to take time. So the other interesting question I thought to this question, and I think people don't really think about it, also with the nuance that Southeast Asia is also multi-country markets as well, is the selling in the markets that you operate in. Maybe can you talk a, a little bit on how are you thinking about sale of vehicles locally in the markets you operate in? For example, I guess Indonesia now is the largest market. For those who may not know about Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, if you walk around, everyone is going around the city through a motorcycle. And are there any tweaks to the business model to which what you need to do to make the sale happen? This is the only question I think in your interview where I'm going to try and keep more of the details closer to my chest. Just sidecar, but relevant point is uh, some of our press release content I can see being regurgitated by some of the other OEMs who are really just buying from China, right? Starting in Singapore or parts of Southeast Asia and they're just using our language. So I really don't want to say too much. We're still figuring it out. But I think some... To keep the, the podcast interview interesting, I think there are some maxims that have bubbled to the surface. I think we will do a direct-to-customer approach. It is the harder way, but I think it is the way. It will be digital first, and there will be lifestyle retail touch points and partner networks that we're going to have to roll out. Another maxim, I think, is that automotive business is not consumer internet scaling. I am leery of investors who ask me to grow fast. I'm leery of investors who are pushing me to launch quickly so that I can get pre-orders. Right? I think hardware inherently is complex. It's going to take time and it's going to take more capital than what I think most VCs are able to support from the fund life and you know, check size perspective in this part of the world. But it is not blade scaling and, and it's going to take a different approach in order to have what I call slow and steady growth. Right? I wouldn't call it the elephant. I wouldn't call it the camel. I wouldn't invoke any animals. Right? But, but I do think that... Uh, the other aspect of just understanding local conditions is also very key. And I think in our team, in my background and experiences as an engineer, trained, multidisciplinary, multifunction, you know, product CEO, founder, that's multi-hatting. I think we have we understand this really well and we're gonna do our damn best to try and pull this off. It's not gonna be easy. But we're still figuring it out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, from our conversations for so many years, I I know you for being very authentic and always speak to the point. And I'm really glad that you provide a very, at least honest of what you want to share about where you're heading as such. I think I want to switch a little bit about the question and maybe come to the fundraising for your company. It's definitely a challenge. And I think a lot of people do not appreciate how difficult it is to raise money for a hardware company plus software company together at the same time. How much have you raised so far? Given my last data point, I think is about around US 6.8 mil for a seed round. It's pretty large. And who are the investors in the round that are helping you along the way? Yeah, so so we started out by raising a 3.3 bridge in kind of like a seed bridge in 2000, 2020. That was the year where we started to assemble the team and put the in-house R&D and product process together. We then raised 3.2 million external more, which made it 6.5 million total external. And I invested significant, I mean, north of half a million of uh, personal money into the company. So I kind of rounded it up and put 6.8 million. 
but I'm not being precise. And, and I think apart from the myself and you know the team, I think noteworthy external investors that have validated our taken a stake in our early vision and mission, not, notably TNB Aura and Quest Ventures, Monk Hill Ventures. I mean, all, all our folks that I've either co-invested with have known me for a long time from the VC world. And I have a US investor in the form of Village Global. And we also have GDP, we also count GDP Venture as a significant investor, as well as 500 Southeast Asia and Seas Capital, right? The co-investment fund in Singapore government. And as you can see, right, I mean, six and a half million, and I mentioned quite a few names, even if you just assume no one else comes in, divide it out. The average check size is also a reflection of the complexity of trying to fundraise with nothing to show for it. I mean, you, you, you don't really have an MVP that you can just show, right? Hardware takes a lot more to get going in that sense. But I'm really thankful for their support so far. And you also put your skin in the game as well, right? Yeah, I, nothing, nothing beats that. Find me founders in a typical build that can put that much money in. Uh, not easy also, which I think also lends some confidence and credibility to attempting to raise with a bigger <laughs> idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. How do you convince your investors to invest in a hardware company? And to be frank, I know some of them, I won't name who, but some of them are afraid of hardware challenges as well. Wow. I mean, this question brings me back. I think I, there were moments of wavering, but eventually it pulled through. It wasn't really, it was really wasn't easy. Uh, I got a lot of negatives and platitudes from people I didn't expect. Uh, I'm surprised. There are funds who raise money from investors who don't want to take, ser- take us seriously, given what we're doing. But I also don't blame them, as you rightfully pointed out. It's very easy, I think, in life for people to wonder if other people can do it if they don't think they can or not seen it before happen. And having worn that hat before, having made those mistakes before, I understand. But I really am grateful for the support and we've gotten, in spite of the adversity of trying to raise amidst the pandemic. I always think about the pandemic, this Thanos level finger snap where everyone's brought back to square one and during this difficult past two years, all the norms are thrown out of the window. It makes for a very interesting period to fundraise with not much to show for it. And a lot of people have said that I'm crazy to make this leap. But I say it's the best possible time to be building because everyone's back to square one. But at the end of the day, it's very important to also pay due respect to luck and timing. I think any entrepreneur who tells you luck is not a function of his or her outcome must be joking. And I think luck and timing played a part. And we were lucky to be able to pull together six and a half US in seed. For software, it's quite a fair amount, right? But I think for hardware, it's not enough. But we've been able to, with uh, hustle, pull together the kind of execution and teams. I mean, like we built the, I built my Shenzhen team without flying there. I've never built a team in Shenzhen before, right? And I think those are examples of how we've just had to hustle to make this happen. And I think that's how we've, I think investors is one part of the equation, uh, but the pandemic made it even harder. And yeah, <laughs> I'm looking back, still amazed by it sometimes. Given that you are an investor previously, so one, one interesting question I think we don't ask a lot in our region is how do you communicate and get advice from your board in your current role as a CEO of your company? This is an interesting question to ask me. I've been asked that for by my board actually how they want them to support me, right? And I think the reason why they ask me is because I'm not your usual founder. Uh, I have experience and connections and battle scars and track record that classical first-time founders don't have. And I think I can hard carry my team and get hands-on and wear multiple hats. 
so that the rest of my leadership team can focus on what I can't do that they can do. I thank the CEO, CMO, CFO role. Because of my background and my profile, I think my board has been ordered an amount of trust in me. And I think when we survived uh, the founder disagreements that I had with my former co-founder, I think that, that, that process made some of my investors even more convicted. The way we handled the situation, the maturity and the crisis management and the way the company was fully aligned right behind this. So, so in thinking about how they support me, I think they, they're really very entrepreneur friendly and very focused on being my sounding board. They look after my mental well-being because uh, I'm not a, I wouldn't say that I'm a single founder because I, I self-diluted post the founder breakup and elevated folks into the leadership team and, and, and really created healthy ESOP pools and all that. But you could say that I'm a the earliest fa- single founder and uh, with a leadership team. And so they, so they really helped me by being my sounding board in a way which my leadership team cannot. And they support my vision, this crazy vision of trying to do this out of Singapore, China, and Indonesia to focus on the Southeast Asia market while keeping an eye on risks that I might not be able to look at now that I'm no longer daily wearing the hat of a VC looking at a portfolio, right? So I'm more blinkered as an operator these days. And of course, the strategic introductions and being the cheerleading team, uh, I think that's something that I, I greatly appreciate them doing for me. Mm. And that comes to my last question then. What does great look like for Ion Mobility in the next five years? When I started to start this business and we picked this brand and Ion and, you know, we think I thought about what we want to achieve. I think top of mind, I think, is wanting to have this brand premium that we generate from the positioning of our products in the minds of our customer segments as they vote with the, with the most, most democratic manner of voting, right, with their wallet dollars. And the second part, I think, of what great looks like for us would be having the quality label as described by the customers to us. I think quality in automotive is extremely important. And you have to be a quality product, a quality-focused company in order to instill long-term trust. I mean, there's a reason why Apple, DJI products, you know, and even Samsung products are great because quality is top of mind. I think a third metric would look like, you know, six-figure level active revenue-contributing motorbikes on the roads across Southeast Asia, contributing revenue to the business across, you know, hopefully two to three product lines across three to four countries in Southeast Asia. And ultimately, speaking as a CFO, I think we'll hope to see positive EBITDA, positive free cash flow, so that you don't, you don't really have to be, for, you know, always dependent on external investors to finance the company through these unsustainable, you know, unit economics. I think it's important to achieve, you know, self-sufficiency, self-resilience. And, and that's probably the last that's where I'll leave it at, right? I think great will be when we can, we're, we're, we're masters of our own destiny on this crazy ocean. Yeah. Besides, I think money is going to get very expensive with the interest rate rising. So I think we were not going to see that era of cheap money anymore in the era. Yeah. So- yeah. I think, I think I've been, uh, I think the, uh, you know, off the back of two years of pandemic uh, and raising some money, we're now having to raise in a, in a climate of you know rising cost of capital and more cautious H&I, individual net worth, high net worth investors and cautious funds who want to kind of wait for all the companies to bleed before they pick up the winners, right? There are survivors. So, so I really feel like I've been jumping from one, one hot pot of oil into another. And, and this, this, this really is a pretty, pretty challenging, but also invigorating journey so far. Yeah. 
James, I wish you all the best in getting this venture work and hopefully someday, well, and turning this really into a reality for Southeast Asia. So in closing, two last questions to ask. Any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Oh, I haven't had much time to read, unfortunately, but two books that are top of mind for me in thinking about how to be, how to find my own place. How, what Two books that help me, actually, I think a lot is, uh, one of it is The 48 Rules of Power. I think it's important to think about how to, how power is generated conserved, kept, used, sometimes potentially even abused, right? And recognizing it. And then the second book, ironically, is The Dictator's Handbook. I like that book a lot. It talks about how dictatorships are all, all around us in the world, cartels, dictatorships. It really opened my eyes about what how things work in ways that school can never. I think these two books are covering spats, things that schools don't teach, right? And yeah, I think these are two recommendations I would give to your audience. And how do my audience find you? I don't use Twitter much, but Twitter is a very public access channel. My handle is M0T0CHAN, Motochan, but with two zeros. You can find me easily as Motochan, M-O-T-O-C-H-A-N on LinkedIn or James Chan. And yeah, I'm reachable at james at iomobility.com on email. And you can definitely find us on any podcast platform now. And of course, tweet to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. And go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and write us a review. And that will actually enable us to be discovered easily. So James, many thanks for coming on the podcast and share your story. And I look forward to speak to you in the future. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for having me and good night. Run it, run it, run it, run it.